We're live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in Chicago, Illinois. This is Bug House! Monday night, um, daylight saving time is over. It's not daylight savings, let's remember, that's really important. It is not daylight savings, there's no S. And that is something you should jump on, jump down the throats of anybody who says otherwise. Uh, all right, um, anyway, so here's a, a, a situation that I had. Last week, I was, I was on the internet, I was on Facebook, and I got into this uh, this stupid discussion with a friend who had posted something, she's pro-life, um, regarding abortion. Um, well, I don't know, there's like other kinds of pro-life, right? Like I'm pro-plant life, like I don't step on grass, that kind of thing. Um, that's a thing. So yeah, so she had posted this article that's, that somebody had written like satirically, I guess, about how my, my, how my wife, why my wife and I decided to, decided to abort our gay son. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's kind of funny. So I read the article, I was like, what the fuck is this? So I read the article, and it was basically saying, like, a, you know, that some people get an abortion if there's, like, a genetic defect in their child, right? And they were making the argument that why, would, why not do it for a, a gay kid if you know that the kid is going to be gay because their life is going to be harder, there will be hardships, blah, 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 blah. It was a little weak, but I get it. Fine. So I commented, I don't remember exactly what I commented on, and I try not to get into arguments or discussions with, with this stuff, because I, I haven't had to deal with it, it's not my place, I, you know. But this one girl, and she is a girl, she's like 25, a woman, but she's like a young woman, she's a girl. And based on the way that she thinks, she's a fucking girl. So here's what she wrote, she posted this. This is, this is her post, uh, or her like, comment on the post. Pro-choice definition. An excuse to kill another human being. A human being that is innocent, already created, unseen, vulnerable, unable to defend himself or herself. Abortion. Terminating a life. Killing life. Killing a baby. So I wrote, can you cite where that definition is? Because I don't... I don't think that's in Webster's. And she replied, it's my definition. So here's the thing. We're at a point in humanity where we don't use facts and figures. We just throw our bullshit emotions out there. And it's not just on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Like, it's in daily conversation that we have with people. Tonight, Bug House is all about the art of the dialectic. It's, it's arguing with reason. We use facts, we can insert some feelings, but it's mostly about facts, and it's about who makes the better argument. 
So, three topics tonight. These are the important issues of the day. The first one tonight that we're going to hear about is our tribe. Should it be a like-minded bubble, or should it be diverse in thought? Arguing that is Phyllis Porche and Mike Vinopal. Vulture Feather Vinopal. <laughs> I'm just trying it out, man. I'm just trying it out. Uh, secondly, are the woke the new Puritans? Okay. And then third, Thanksgiving. Is it all about gratitude, Kimosabi? Or is it all about football and farts, brah? <laughs> so that's what we're going to figure out. We're going to have six debaters arguing either side of it. And we have one judge tonight. And the judge has absolute power on which argument is best and who the winner of each bout is. off with a bit of a refrain that I hope you'll catch on and say with me after too long. We can only be subjective, prisoners of our perception. So I need you and your perspective. Prisoners of our own perception. Well, we know what we experience. And our individual experiences can be somewhat limited by a great number of things. But we have the capacity to learn. We have the capacity to challenge those limitations of our circumstance. As prisoners, it is our duty to grow beyond that mental cage. It's about broadening a vision, filling in the perceptual blind spots that we all have. We can only be subjective, prisoners of perception. I need you and your perspective. Dang. <laughs> we may never be truly objective, but that's not what this is about. It's about connection. Connection without judgment, ideally. But we can't all be idealists. It's about, at the base layer, making people feel comfortable expressing themselves, unvarnished. So you get the raw uncut. You get to fill in your gaps. When you think of living in a bubble and birds of a feather, chances are there are a couple of birds in that flock not feeling like they can fully talk about what makes them happy, gives them joy. I know when I was a kid, just with the expectations to comply to what is masculine. If I wanted to dance, people looked at me as a big oafish man and said, you can't be a dancer. You're a big guy, you gotta play football. Put me in a little bit of a box. So if I wanted to run with that crowd or if I wanted to feel part of that flock, I had to kind of suppress some of those things that brought me joy. We may be birds in that flock, not feeling like we can express ourselves fully, lest we risk the cozy comforts of the bubble. The cozy comforts the bubble provides, lest we risk it all, be cast out from the bubble entirely. I love it when bubbles combine, you get those really crazy looking multi-bubbles. They're all different. <laughs> 
fucking awesome. Friday's the spice of life. We can only be subjective. We're prisoners of our perception. I need you and your perspective. So walk with me now. Behold, the mighty Kellogg's variety pack of cereal selection. Look at them, all the pretty boxes. Two by two, eight and all. Corn pops, fruit loops, frosted flakes. Even corn flakes for those healthy choices. In the beginning, when we saw these as little kids like myself, we had the opportunity to decide what we liked. Try some things out. Begin to uncover our identity as a cereal consumer. Corn pops got stuck in my teeth. Not for me, but maybe I'll, I'll eat them if they're the last of the eight. Tony the Tiger's great. Frosted Flakes must have sprinkled some crack on it. Loved it. Started to understand maybe I'm a Frosted Flakes guy. Tried some Fruit Loops. Maybe I'm not a fruity cereal type, but I can appreciate it. I can understand why Toucan Sam is important to people. <laughs> All right. I love taking this analogy with the food. So let's, let's do one more. Walk with me again. Behold, the corner Froyo spot. Let's call it Froyo Square for, for this particular instance. You walk in, you have innumerable selections of Froyo goodness. A maximum amount of permutations of flavors you could sprinkle atop. Dividers to split the cup to get even more combinations of flavor. Exploring your Froyo identity, learning what you like, but you know what? You may have gone to Froyo so many times and still not been able to come up with the perfect combination. Maybe there's combinations out there you never considered. And then somebody says, hey, throw some kiwi on that real straight keeper plain style. It will blow your mind. You try it out, and you are illuminated. <laughs> so I know it all seems super silly, and I love food. I come from an Italian family. But illumination is the goal. Broadening the beam that you cast to highlight some of those darker corners, to uncover the shadows, pull the beast into the light, so to speak. Shed some light on some topics that maybe others have no frame of reference for. And it can be easy. It can be as easy as trying some new things that somebody has suggested that you may or may not like. Jumping out of that comfort zone. Above all, listening. Listening and learning from others' experiences. By far the greatest reason for living outside your bubble or including people in your bubble, if that's where you reside, is to build empathy, which can seem like a scarce resource sometimes when you're scrolling through your news feeds and all of that. Empathy for the plight of others whose experiences are different from that of your own. I can't claim to know what it's like to navigate the world as anything but what I am. I'm a white, cisgendered male, to quote the illustrious Don Hall. And I can tell you 
that I have experiences with navigating the world at that intersection. But I couldn't claim to tell you, I know what it's like to navigate the world as someone who identifies as female, someone who identifies as gay or trans or a person of color. But what I can do is I can leave that door open. I can make people feel comfortable shedding some light on some experiences that I have no frame of reference for. First responders, military, people who are incarcerated, people coming from a lower socioeconomic status than my own. That bell is so beautiful. And it really puts a little pin in that because I really think that diversity is the only way, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great night. sexist, ageist, homophobe, or any other kind of hater asshole. <laughs> but in the immortal words of Anita, portrayed by Rita Moreno in West Side Story, a boy like that who'd kill your brother? Forget that boy and find another. One of your own kind. Stick with your own kind. What's wrong with spending time or the rest of your life with someone who shares your needs, wants, desires, ideology, skin tone, hair texture, musical taste, and love of rib dips. Sure, people marry outside their ethnic circle, but so many of those marriages have been disastrous. For the sake of brevity, let's take a look at Kim Kardashian. <laughs> at 19, she married 29-year-old Damon Thomas a record producer, Grammy Award winner, and yes, a black man. Their marriage lasted three years until Mr. Thomas filed for divorce. Now, I didn't dig through you know, a bunch of divorce records to find out the reason, but most likely, it was the ever-popular irreconcilable differences. Or, we, which pretty much says it all, except for the truth that she's white and he's not, or we can go a step further and say she's Armenian and he's not. <laughs> Either way, they were different. Oh, and she said they got married because she was high on ecstasy and that that was the first time she'd ever used it. <laughs> Let's look at Chris and uh, Chris Humphreys and Kim. First of all, Chris is a grounded Midwestern boy from Minnesota who made a lot of money and a name for himself in the NBA. Kim? It's a spoiled Hollywood brat who was, whose life was first paid for with her daddy's money and later by her own money from flaunting her extravagant or just plain extra life on television and the $5 million she got from suing the company that released her sex tape. More on that in a minute. Never mind that Chris gave her a 20 and a half carat engagement ring. Their marriage lasted a sad 72 days. Kim filed for divorce and Chris was devastated. Ironically, breaking their legal connection took 504 days, which is actually seven times longer than they were married. 
And while she wanted a divorce, he wanted an annulment, as in our marriage never existed. Also, Chris is half black on his father's side. The reason for that, that divorce, irreconcilable dis differences. Are you sensing a pattern here? <laughs> Next, there's William Raymond Norwood Jr., known commercially as Ray J, the next brother on the Kim K hit parade. He is also big in the entertainment industry and has his own money. He also has the distinction of being Snoop's cousin. Not really relevant, but also cool. <laughs> now, Kim and Ray won't, weren't married, but they are forever entwined because of the sex tape they made entitled Kim Kardashian, Superstar. Superstar at what exactly? Getting married and quickly divorced? Or letting dudes videotape her having sex? In her own defense, Kim told the media that she made the sex tape for the same reason that she eloped with Damon Thomas. She was high on ecstasy. <laughs> Kimmy, just say no. <laughs> Kanye West. What can I say? They were longtime friends. They started dating in 2012, ironically, while Kim was still married to Chris. And they got married in 2014. No mind-altering drugs were involved in this marriage, or it hasn't been disclosed yet. In terms of religion, Kim says she's Christian and really religious. Uh-huh. She attended Presbyterian and Roman Catholic schools, and she was baptized Armenian Apostolic. Given that, maybe it's just really, really hard for her to find a man with a matching spiritual background. I don't want anybody to think that I am picking on Kim K. I am, but clear that thought from your mind. <laughs> Instead, let's look at the brothers that she is hooked up with. At least three of them were in the music industry. So my question is, if, were these dudes not familiar with Belle Biv DeVoe's poison? <laughs> Doesn't everybody know, never trust a big butt and a smile? That Ooh. girl is poison. <laughs> Had they stuck with their own kind, they might be known for more than being one of Kim K's ex and or present husbands. Had she been under the influence of ecstasy when she married Kanye? Damn, that would make so much more sense. But no. She was allegedly in her right mind. We know that if ecstasy played a role, well, I'm sorry, we won't know if ecstasy played a role until their inevitable, inevitable divorce. And you know it's coming. The aforementioned couplings were made possible by the landmark Supreme Court decision, Loving v. Virginia, that struck down America's anti-mixed marriage law. Mildred Jeter and Richard Loving were married in 1958 and stayed together until Richard's death in 1975. And Mildred never remarried. She died in 20, 2008. Before Loving v. Virginia, America used the one-drop rule to determine race. That meant one drop of black blood made a person black, no matter what he or she looked like. DNA testing didn't happen until the 80s. So how exactly did the government know how many drops of any kind of blood a person carried? My point, and I do have one, with the present orange dude in the White House treating, tweeting vitriol on a daily basis, is America just a blood draw away from bringing back those no mixing laws? Will John Legend and Chrissy Teigen be arrested for having a baby and mixing their blood in ways that the government deems illegal? 
Will everybody in the U.S. be required to have a blood test to determine their actual ethnic makeup? Think about it, 23andMe, Ancestry, those D DNA testing services that provide ethnic breakdowns, were they created to give us more information on who we are and where we come from, or are they a sorting device? You know, so when the president decides in his Hitlerian matter to imprison anyone who is not of pure white ancestry, those people will be easier to find, you know, like Catholics on Ash Wednesday. <laughs> and if that does happen, watch how fast Indice Diallo takes down her cornrows, stops tanning, and goes back to being Rachel Dolezal. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah, it sounds crazy. Just like Donald J. Trump sitting in the big chair sounds like a crazy, crazy nightmare that I'm still waiting to wake up from. So if you don't want to end up in mixed marriage prison, do two things. Don't get your DNA tested and stick to your own kind, one of your own kind. Thank you. So our first bout has concluded. Do we have any questions from the audience for either Phyllis or Mike, or both of them, about their arguments? No? That's cool. All right, Judge Hom, do you have a ruling? Yeah, I want to congratulate both of you for really witty and, and very resourceful arguments, ingenious arguments. I have problems with both. So you have problems with both of their arguments? Okay. Okay. Uh, Mike, I, I was waiting for you to address what I think is the framing of the question for our time, our time right now. What if the other side that you want to include in your bubble, what if the other side that you want to be so receptive to is the guy who's not receptive to anybody else? What if he is the exclusionist? What, what, do, you, what do you do in this, in this situation? You didn't address it. It was a problem I had with yours. Otherwise, I thought your argument was really pretty good. I mean, John, do you want to pose that as a question to him? Yeah. He could answer that. Absolutely. So the question, uh, the, the question again, uh, what, what do you do if, uh, if the person that you want to, you disagree with. Shall we have empathy for the Ku Klux Klan? Shall we have, shall we have, shall we accept and uh, welcome into our fold White supremacy, white supremacy. What do you do with a guy whose argument leaves you out? Okay, so the question is, can we be friends with somebody who uh, hates others? Yeah. In short. You got a minute. So my, my best response to that question is that your best chance to push them positively in the right direction is to come from a place of empathy and caring and trying to figure out where they're coming from that has such a dissonance with what many of us hold to be kind of a common sense sort of empathy for others and their experiences. Trying to get to the root of that is how you try to have a productive conversation with somebody who is ignorant and trying to box out other people and trying to only look at it from where they sit at the table. Um, I think by shutting a person completely out, you therefore eliminate any chance of potentially 
changing their mind, even if it's just a slight nudge in a positive direction, I think that ends up adding to the overall positivity of uh, you know, what can potentially break down these walls of racism, misogyny, all of that stuff that leaves people feeling excluded and isolated in their experience. So Mike is the winner. I really like what you said. Thanks. Okay, Mike Noble's the winner. All right, our second topic tonight: Are the woke the new Puritans? Uh, we've got M.T. Cazola and Sherry Rita. Please welcome them to the stage. tell us that the woke are wrongfully shaming us. Or Sherry's going to say, no, they're doing the righteous work of the non-denominational Good Samaritans. So, MT is going first, right? We're still sure. decided on that? Okay, cool. Uh, please welcome MT Gazzola. Yeah. Am I going to screw this up if I lower it? <laughs> yeah, I looked right at you. <laughs> All right, then. Okay. Uh, I, I, I got to tell you, I, I am terrified. Are the woke the new Puritans? That is a dangerous question, at least when asked of someone like me. I mean, as a white, middle-aged woman, no, wait, I'm not sure I should say that. I don't mean to use age as a value judgment or an attempt to apologetically contextualize myself. As a white woman, no, not woman, I don't want to reinforce the gendered markering of females into some lesser category of humanness than men. Plus, there's the whole question of whether I'd even call myself female if the term hadn't been drilled into me as a baby by, you know, Susie Bake Ovens and um, pink clothing. 
So, um, as a white, nope. I don't want to say white. The term white, I do believe, is a political construct that exists primarily to unify European-born groups in the US against non-European-born groups in order to oppress them. And I don't want to do that. But for me, for me to not use the term white is almost worse because it, it flaunts a kind of naivete that is the exclusive province of the privileged oppressor class. So I don't want to do that either. OK. So what I mean is, as a person alive right now in this body, it would be cultural suicide for me to make any claims about a term that I have no right to use, the term woke culture. That is a political term of African-American origin that describes a consciousness of racial discrimination. And so I feel wrong even saying those words. Because no matter what my intention is, appropriating that term for my own use is, is cultural appropriation, just like the way the Puritans appropriated you know, native lands for planting crops and building their white Protestant churches. So I don't have the authority to even use these words. But I do know a little something about Puritanism. So I'm going to talk about that. And I have that authority because when I was a freshman in college, I auditioned for the role of Abigail in the Crucible. <laughs> and yes, I did Google Arthur Miller before I came here tonight to make sure that he has not been canceled. And I learned some interesting stuff. And so for anyone who wants to point out that his play is masquerading as an expose of mob mentality, but what it actually is is a thinly disguised kind of hero worship built on the back of a woman who just didn't feel pretty enough, I promise I will get to that. But for right now, I auditioned for the role of Abigail. And uh, if you don't know the play, she is the servant girl who has a fling with the lonely but um, you know, devout John Proctor, who then has an attack of conscience and breaks it off with her. And she gets her revenge by accusing his wife of witchcraft. So I made it to callbacks. And for my callback scene, <laughs> I told you I was an authority of this. I uh, read for my callback scene, I read against uh, an actor who was playing the role of John Proctor, um, and he was somebody who was the child of two famous actors. And he had this like effortless seeming aura of great acting about him. Um, maybe because he was born into it, or maybe just because he was a good actor. Um, but anyway, I read with him, I acted my heart out. And the next day, the casting is announced, and there's a sheet posted at the theater. And I go and check and learn that I did not get the role of Abigail. I didn't even get one of the smaller roles of the other girls that accuse people of witchcraft. However, there is a note at the bottom of the sheet that says, Mary Therese Cazola, come see me, the director. So I go down the hall to the office of the director and head of the theater program, Fred Gaines. And he tells me that I did a great audition. OK. I was so good that he has decided to offer me an opportunity even better than playing one of the small roles. 
he's offering me the chance to be his assistant director. Now, I'm a freshman, this is my first audition, and this is my chance to position myself as an actor of substance at this university. So I say, assistant director, <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> and he says, your choice, but I will tell you this is an opportunity I don't normally offer freshmen. And I say, I'm already an experienced director from high school, so if I'm not good enough to even be in your play, I don't see the point of being your gopher. <laughs> and he says, oh, you're an experienced director. Well, then you'll understand that it's not about you being good enough. It was just a chemistry thing. You and Campbell should never be on a stage together. And, uh, and it, Campbell is the actor who did indeed get the role of John Proctor. And I'm like, chemistry? What does that mean? Like, am I so good that I make this child of two famous actors look false when he acts across from me? Or is he so good that he makes me look false? But see, I can't ask Fred this because that would reveal that when I said I was an experienced director, what I meant was that I had directed one after-school production of The Bad Seed and just kind of winged it in high school. And that would prove that Campbell is indeed better than me. And I'd frankly rather just think of him as being lucky enough to be you know, born of acting royalty than to think that he's actually a better actor. So instead I nod and say chemistry, right, got it. And I never mention it again, and I don't get to be involved in that production, and I don't get to learn about directing and acting from some people who could probably teach me a lot in the process. And that is sincerely my fear about woke culture. The way I removed myself from that production, because I didn't get the role that I wanted, is the way that I feel many people within woke culture cut themselves off from open discussion about racial and social injustice with anyone that they perceive to either not understand them or to have committed some offense against them, whether large or small. And I know that you can argue there are no small offenses that even an unintentional microaggression does violence. Just as the Puritans argued that you are either a goodly Christian or you're in league with the devil, there are no in-betweens. Now I want to close with a quote from The Crucible quickly, and yes, I do think that Arthur Miller cheapened his play by creating a version of history where every sexually active woman in that play is a little unhinged. So instead of reading from his script, I'm going to read you something from the introduction to the play by Christopher Bigsby. It is the essence of power that it accrues to those with the ability to determine the nature of the real. They authorize the language, the grammar, the vocabulary within which others must live their lives. Woke culture is the new puritanism is a dangerous thing for me to say. And for that reason, I submit that it's probably true. Thank you. MT. Now the counterpoint, please welcome Sherry Rita. Thank you. 
So MT is uh, kind of on, our, on the side of our beloved past president, Obama, who came out of retirement last week, out of his wealth making or hiding or whatever he's doing with his foundation that's paying his friends millions of dollars a year. <laughs> Obama comes out of obscurity in this time of assaults upon abortion rights and gay rights and transgender rights and the very survival of refugees. A time when the whole nation is abandoning allies, abandoning core principles, abandoning the Constitution. And he criticizes the woke for being judgmental. What the fuck do you say to that? <laughs> okay, boomer? I... <laughs> of course, as Obama says, being woke is not enough to make change. But that doesn't mean you stop being woke. It means that first you get woke and then you get moving. So I have to begin by saying I sympathize with pretty much everything MT said. I even empathize with it. I mean, sometimes it, it seems like the suffering everywhere never ends. Everyone is suffering from something, sometime. Or maybe everyone everywhere is suffering from everything all the time. I can hardly tell. I just know that it can feel like there's an ongoing wave of it and no break in the onslaught. And when I experience it that way, I just want to go to sleep. No shame in that, right? And going to sleep when you're just dead tired. And just resting a minute in the comfort of knowing that you may have been a beneficiary once or twice of racism or sexism or gender discrimination. You may have been a beneficiary, but you haven't been a perp. Sometimes you wanna just say, get off me, right? Okay, here's the ridiculous white people's problem that woke me up to being woke. Although, I agree that if you really wanna be the Puritan's Puritan, you don't wanna use the term on yourself because there is some appropriation of black English there. I work sometimes at this lovely North Shore Library my bosses and coworkers are friendly. The atmosphere is warm and mostly welcoming. Diversity and inclusion are a big part of the conversation, even though they're not a big part of the population. <laughs> or maybe because they're not a big part of the population. <laughs> but they try. I mean, I mean, we have enforced breaks. We're not allowed to miss our breaks. We have to take them. It's that humane. And about four, four and a half years ago, when I was new on the job, one of my coworkers, we'll call her Evelyn, because I still have to work with her. She greeted me when I returned from break. And then she asked me to make sure I put the mouse back where it belongs after breaks. I was confused. I mean, the place was tidy, but did we put the mouse somewhere whenever we were done with it? No. It was that I'm left-handed. So you know, 90% of the population is right-handed. I'm used to that. I begin each shift with picking up the mouse and the mouse pad from the right side of the computer, setting them down on the left side, getting to work. When my coworkers work a shift that follows mine or when they cover one of my breaks, I have to come back and I have to move, move the mouse back from the right side back to the left side. Evelyn didn't like doing that. Now, it was such a shock to me that she even had an opinion that I didn't know what to say in reply. Will you put the mouse back where it belongs? I said, 
then I ignored her. Life went on. We exchanged pleasantries and good wishes. We subbed for each other, gave each other tips and help, and it never came up again. Till last month. I was working an evening shift with my lovely, caring, supportive new boss, and just before we packed it in for the night, she said, um, do you think that before you leave, you can be sure to put the mouse back on the right-handed side? I stared at her like foggy with deja vu. She added, you know, because most people are right-handed, it's just more convenient that way. And I nodded again, just like I did four years ago. And then I blurted, did Evelyn ask you to say that? <laughs> My boss smiled and reassured me, nah. And then a moment later she said, someone else did, and gave a little laugh. I frowned for a second and then I remembered this was my boss asking me to do something that wasn't that hard, so I nodded, said goodnight, and on my way home, got myself into a huff. <laughs> so I only work at the library three times a week. I have to move that mouse and mouse pad every time I work and after every break because everyone else puts it back on the right side. I have to twist myself into a pretzel to use the barcode reader because it's over here. I have long adapted to using only right-handed scissors the doors aren't made for me, but at least two right-handers are complaining because they're inconvenienced by my left-handedness. On top of that, they've been talking about it. Talking about me behind my back. Standing around and talking about how my being different, about my being left-handed in a right-handed world, is a pain in the ass for them. And if I wanted to stop, I'm the one who has to explain my position. I'm the one who gets accused of being petty. Ping! Woke. A little. Maybe just a little. Maybe enough to know that other people might have obstacles I don't even see. That other people around me might have to make daily adaptations that are way harder than moving a fucking mouse or just getting a trackpad for God's sake. <laughs> They might have to do stupid handshakes all day long with people who are trying to be cool. They might have to switch pronouns around all the time when referring to people they love or when referring to themselves. They might have to dress in a way that feels like drag to them so it doesn't look like drag to me. They might get accused of being the new Puritans or the neo-fascists or PC Nazis just because they won't go into the straitjacket provided for their use. Thing is, I've been told that my coworkers come off kind of petty here, but they're mostly not. They're kind and helpful and thoughtful, and they didn't realize they were othering me. Nobody meant to suggest that their convenience was more important than mine, though mine was trampled every day. Nobody, <laughs> Nobody meant to make me feel talked about, shamed, less valued than they were. That was the effect they had. And I have to emphasize this, it's a really minor scale. And by the way, when I got up the guts to share my objections, my boss apologized. I mean, she actually apologized for my discomfort. And the subject was dropped. But you get it, right? I had to take the risk. I had to undertake the education of my peers. I had to consider myself lucky to maintain a condition that all my coworkers took for granted. So now, I get it just a little. Intentions count. Definitely they count. 
Good intentions are good, but they're not enough. The bad effects of our well-intentioned words and deeds, those count for more. And you don't get to judge whether the small request or the sock in the jaw, or the pinch in the ass, or the curious stare, or the misused pronoun, you don't get to judge how much it hurt, and neither do I, the injured party gets to say that. So maybe you don't know your own strength of your own culture. Maybe it causes you discomfort to witness that you stepped on someone's toes, or heart, or identity, or rights, or safety, or their very life. Maybe you don't mean it when you crash on through, but it's time to stop sleepwalking through your life before you walk the culture off the cliff. And it's your job to wake up. And if someone has the grace to get you woke, thank them. And if you feel shamed when someone calls you in, or calls you out, if you are doing something shameful, then for God's sake, change. That's all I gotta say. Judge Hom, do you have your ruling? I do. Uh, I really enjoyed both of the arguments about their elegantly put together and I enjoyed the language. I learned a lot about what it is to be a, an actress and a, an assistant and, and to be offered a job as an assistant director. I really appreciated that. Um, and I like to play the music. Sherry Rita said something in her argument that connected up with something I, I, I think is, absolute, is, is absolutely true. David Foster Wallace would have said in other words what, what she said when she said, maybe the other guy has obstacles we don't even know about. Those obstacles for him are very real, even though for you they might seem bad. David Foster Wallace's obstacles were his footnotes. <laughs> just throwing that out there. Continue, Your Honor. Well, I, I consider David Foster Wallace settled law, so I'll take it. I'm going to give this one to Sherry. telling us that it's a Thursday of gluttony and concussions. It's football that matters. And eating a lot and farting. I don't know if there's farting in your argument, but maybe there should be. <laughs> we'll see, we'll see what happens. All right, so wait, who's going first? Uh, Brett's up first, so please welcome Brett Dworsky. He was right, I am shorter, so this is good. <laughs> Only because you've written a story about it before. I have? Yeah. Hey, everybody. Hey. So, every holiday is an incredibly subjective thing. I think we can all agree with that. 
every holiday means something different for everyone. Um, doesn't matter if Joe and Mike both celebrate Christmas. Christmas can mean something totally different for both of them. It probably does. So all I can do is explain why Thanksgiving, to me, is not the day to be thankful. It's not a day or the day to be thankful. So my family is not big on Thanksgiving at all. Despite it being a secular holiday, my mom often says it's just not for us Jews. <laughs> so instead of feasting on turkey and stuffing and cranberry sauce and collard greens and everything else people eat on Thanksgiving, my family usually reserves a table somewhere, usually Bupa de Pepo, for the six of us. Myself, Mom, Dad, Jordan, Uncle Neil, and my evil Aunt Barbara. <laughs> we only see Aunt Barbara once or twice a year, and every time we do, I swear she's on drugs. <laughs> but isn't being around family members who you loathe part of every holiday? I'm not sure, but Shitty Italian-American food and shitty family members. That's how Thanksgiving has always been for me. It's just, eh, I'm fine with it. Thanksgiving morning, oof. That's actually something I really enjoy. Since I was a little kid, I think third grade, every Thanksgiving morning, my childhood friends and I play seven on seven football. It's one of my favorite things. We freeze our nuts off at Willow Stream Park and all pretend we're the next Tom Brady, the Jewish one. <laughs> Some of us don't care about the game and smoke doobies on the sideline, while some of us get overly competitive and call plays named the annexation of Puerto Rico. <laughs> we come home with chapped lips, bruised elbows, muddy clothes, and churning stomachs. Turkey Bowl is the most fun I have every November. Not because of the game itself, though, but because I get to see friends who've moved to San Francisco, to New York, to San Diego, to Seattle, and even Beijing. Our annual game is my real Thanksgiving celebration, and I'm thankful for it. And the football action doesn't stop after the game. After I get home and my mom yells at me to strip naked in the garage so I don't get schmutz all over her floor, <laughs> I park my now fully clothed ass on the couch to watch the NFL with my dad. Growing up, my dad and I always loved watching football on Sundays, and now that I thankfully don't live at home anymore, Thanksgiving games make the occasion that much better. We've even been lucky to catch some Thanksgiving Bears games over the years, and even though they usually suck ass, Dad and I love it. It's special father-son time, and I'm thankful for it. But am I really supposed to be thankful for Turkey Bowl and watching games with my dad only one day a year? Doesn't make sense, right? I'm thankful every day for those things including a lot of other things, 
For example, that my loved ones are alive and healthy, that I have a 401k, in-unit laundry, poopery, the dollar section at Target, <laughs> almond milk, Advil sinus relief, clean underwear, spoons, birth control, elevators, direct deposits, Jenny's ice cream, that the lump on my testicle I found during college was merely inflammation of my epididymis, crap <laughs> Mel Brooks and Robert De Niro, pickled vegetables, spell check, and wool socks. <laughs> I'm all about a holiday where we stuff our faces and watch football and kibitz with our family and friends. But devoting one day a year for being thankful is bullshit. <laughs> if that's the case, then Thanksgiving should be 365 days a year. We need to be thankful for the things in our lives every single day, all the time, no matter if it's a holiday or a shitty Monday morning. So screw the day of thanks. We have all the time in the world to be thankful. Thanksgiving is about food and football, brah. John, this doesn't count for the argument. I'm just saying that the Jews I know do struggle with the food at Thanksgiving. Like, it just, we're not good at it. It just sucks. But I think that's part of like the Jewish thing. It's like, give thanks for the misery. Like, that's kind of like, the food is It's what got him on it, kind of thing. There you go. Uh, you're all now as reformed Jew as I ever was. That's the knowledge guy. Okay, so please welcome for the next, the other side of that coin, uh, Joe Jaynes. <laughs> Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Out of all the holidays, it is the one with the most straightforward name. <laughs> most straightforward since New Year's Day. It's like, you know, what do we do on Thanksgiving? We give thanks. What do we do on Halloween? We ween hollows. <laughs> Mas Chris on the 25th. Do we celebrate the top five sandwich spreads in Mexico for Cinco de Mayo? <laughs> <laughs> that was for me. Thanksgiving has no religious connotations. Christ did not die for your crudités. The pumpkin pie did not last for eight days. <laughs> if it did, that would not be a miracle. That would be a shame. Anyone can give thanks. Everyone is encouraged to give thanks. Thanking a specific God is optional. You could even thank Satan. Thanksgiving dinner usually comes with animal sacrifices. It's fine to thank Satan. <laughs> to whom you wish to give thanks is up to you. Thanksgiving is when the president pardons a turkey, usually a white turkey. <laughs> Pardoning white turkeys is good practice for our current president. I've always had a problem with this, this tradition. I am glad the turkey isn't going to be killed, but why is it being pardoned? What is the turkey's crime? Was it in danger of being shivved in the shower in Turkey prison? <laughs> it's guilty of being a turkey. Okay, I guess this is an American thing to do. It's guilt by heritage. 
tradition. <laughs> Thanksgiving was my second favorite holiday growing up. Christmas was first because it was a time to honor the birth of Christ, our Savior. Fucking, I'm kidding. It's toys. <laughs> toys. It's all about toys, period. Thanksgiving meant food and family. My mother really wasn't much of a cook, but she always nailed Thanksgiving. We'd watch the Macy's Day Parade on television as the trailer, yes, trailer, filled with the aroma of turkey and pumpkin pie and mashed potatoes. It was magical. Thanksgiving is about eating good food with good people. A Thanksgiving Day Parade is the perfect metaphor for this time of year. It's a vertical, snowpiercer-like event with high school marching bands at one end, building to the elaborate spectacle of floats, giant balloons, and finally Santa Claus coming in to herald the coming of the violent, bloodthirsty, spending orgy that is Black Friday. We go from the grace of giving to the greed of getting. Santa wears red to mask the bloodstains. In these dark times of shady politics, escalating climate change, and mediocre Star Wars sequels, it's important to take stock in what one is thankful for in life. Even if it's just once a year while inserting food into my <coughs> face hole. <laughs> Here's what I'm grateful for this year. Great music. We live at a time when what's hot or current is less important than what you discover or rediscover. You want to feel better about yourself and the world? Put on some Louis Armstrong. Great TV. We are living in a golden age of television and I can't keep up. Nice problem to have. Used to be that there were hundreds of channels and nothing on. Now it's like, hmm, I can sleep, get some work done, or watch the next five episodes of The Americans Before Dawn. <laughs> the arts, all arts, more people are able to express themselves in any manner they see fit. Painting, sculpture, stand-up, improv, acting, TikTok, whatever this is that I'm doing right here, right now. <laughs> it's all available to all of us. <laughs> Nature, as much as we have abused Mother Nature, she thankfully has Stockholm Syndrome and still provides us with beautiful sunsets, mountains, waterfalls, and animals that deserve much better caretakers. <laughs> People suck. That's not the thing to be thankful for. The part to be thankful for are the people in your life who do not suck. The people you can share a laugh with, people you can share a drink with, people you can count on, people whose shoulders you can cry on. I am thankful for my friends and two out of three of my siblings. <laughs> my sexist, racist, Trump-supporting brother can go fuck himself. <laughs> Historically, with question marks, Thanksgiving is about pilgrims and indigenous Americans sharing their autumn harvest. It might have been more like the, Amer the Native Americans thinking, hmm, it's going to be a long winter. We better fatten these fuckers up or they're going to die. <laughs> Having a feast to celebrate a community's good fortune existed way before pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. While how Thanksgiving originated has been sugar-coated and whitewashed, the message remains the same. It's a time to give thanks. A time to be grateful for the good in your life. Also, Stop ruining yams with marshmallows, and Epstein didn't commit suicide. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> there are some incredible, like, Epstein didn't kill himself memes that are, like, it's, it's really funny. Uh, okay, so, any questions? 
from the audience or Joe or for Brett? Sherry, a question. For Brett. Yeah. A question for Brett. Pickled vegetables? Yes, pickled vegetables. Yeah, that's good stuff. You got a minute. <laughs> I love pickled vegetables. <laughs> I have a counter, or a, sec a secondary question to that. Uh, specific kind of pickled vegetables? You have a minute. Mainly pickles. <laughs> but I also really enjoy beets, and radishes, and what other pickled veggies do I like? Any sort of pepper, pickled carrots are phenomenal. Pickles and beets are my favorite pickled vegetables. <laughs> so technically a pickled pickle is just a pickled cucumber. Pickled cucumber. Yeah, so cucumbers. Yeah. You guys know that pickles are just cucumbers? Yeah. yeah. What? Right? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. 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 All right. Uh, <laughs> Sherry, do you not like Pickled things? Like across the board? It was just kind of like, it just, I only asked because your question was like, what? Okay. I just, when I think of things to be grateful for, it's like not really. Little Puritan of you right now. <laughs> little judgy. It's not a little bit judgy. Yeah. The pickled scarlet letter over here he's got to wear. All right. That's <laughs> like the worst literary reference. Maybe ever. <laughs> All right, uh, any other questions? MT. Um, yeah, Joe James, uh, what, what is it about this Epstein story? <laughs> so the, qu the question is for Joe, what is it about Epstein? What about the Epstein story? Well, it, it, there's a series of memes that are out right now that start off like very lighthearted, like ones about like, oh, if you boil, what is it, peaches, oranges, <laughs> like that, your house will fill with this lovely aroma, and Epstein didn't kill himself. Like they always like <laughs> tag themselves. You know, you know what? Who's Epstein, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what it all is referring to, like all these like misdirection memes that always tag with Epstein didn't kill himself. Didn't. Yeah. Didn't commit suicide or whatever it is. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Anything else? No? Yeah, go. Cool. All right. Judge Hom, do you have your ruling? I really like, I really like what Brett said about how we really ought to be grateful every day for all the things we ought to be grateful It doesn't make sense to set aside one day, just one day in a year to be grateful for uh, I really like what Joe James said about how, nevertheless, it's really nice to elevate one day for the dedicated purpose of being thankful for whatever it is you're thankful I, I, I think this one was kind of close because in a way you're, you're arguing the same, the same argument. Um, but I'm going to give this one. Right here at Haymarket Public Brewery for another episode. 
of the Bug House. Thank you and good night.